more so than a uh, uh, anti-urbanism. It's been more about this sort of search for a middle ground of some kind, but obviously rather elusive. Uh, and you might even say, and some have said that the suburb represents this sort of, uh, at least in its origins, this sort of middle ground, you know, the best of both worlds. The trouble is that uh, as in any kind of utopian aspiration, uh, uh, the best of both things become the least of either thing, uh, and therefore the dilemma. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're joined today by architect, urbanist, and author Alex Krieger. Alex joins us to discuss his new book, City on a Hill. Alex, welcome. Well, thank you, Charles. Uh, nice to be chatting with you. It's been a while, given the inability to do so, at least live, uh, over the past year. It has been a bit, hasn't it? It has been a bit. Um, speaking of which, Alex, what, what, what is it like to spend um, you know, years carefully crafting what's clearly already a really significant text and have it launched into an unprecedented global pandemic? <laughs> well, the book signings have been <laughs> affected most directly. Uh, and apparently, uh, although as I understand from whatever sort of national press, very few people have been reading books <laughs> over the past year by comparison before. Uh, I would think that all, all the time on our hands of being at home, you would think that more people would be reading, but nonetheless, otherwise it's fine. On the plus side, I have had uh, sort of virtual book talks. The signing part <laughs> didn't happen, but the virtual book talks oftentimes drew much larger crowds than, of course, you know, any appearance at a bookshop would. The book is uh, already, you know, well-received, uh, well-read. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed reading it. Uh, it's been described as a, an instant classic, certainly canonical at this point. I mean, in part, this is based on your status, as I, I think I'm not alone in thinking of you as really the, the dean of American urbanism at this point in your still vibrant career. It's a book that uh, is ambitious in its own scope. I'm interested to ask, Alex, given the, just the enormity of challenges that we face in the American city today, the, the ecological crises, the kind of economic inequities, societal challenges of a variety of types, not to mention you know, global pandemics, um, why should we continue to be optimistic about the future of the American city? Well, that's an interesting question. And that, of course, uh, leads to the question that I was about to answer before you asked it, which is, you know, it came out at an odd moment when people were hardly thinking about idealism, much less utopianism, as we were sort of struggling and continue to do so today with a variety of interrelated crises, whether it's racism or disease or our completely non-functional political process at home. I think that, and I mentioned this, I think, in a couple of my talks, this term that was used a lot, at least last year, we are all in this together, right? And if that's true, not that we are, the extent that people say we are all in this together, we must have some certain aspirations that are in common. And in that sense, I think idealism, and by the way, my, my book is somewhat misinterpreted and probably my own fault is about utopias. It's not about utopias. They don't actually can never exist other than intellectually. Uh, it's about cultural aspirations and the extent to which uh, uh, any culture must really thrive on a certain set of aspirations. And when those, uh, you know, wean or, or disappear or too much are in con contestation, I think a culture suffers. So I think in that sense, perhaps as we recover from at least the pandemic portion of our crises, as opposed to some of the others that are perhaps will be longer standing, I think the notion of 
returning to understanding some of the national ideals that have sort of held the country together, progressed the country, and trying to get closer to them, as opposed to dismiss them as being about the privileged classes only, I think is worth at least thinking about. In a book, um, an important book about um, idealism, uh, optimism, uh, ambitious collective projects, um, your first line is that cities are inherently compromises in time. What do you mean by compromises in time? Well, <laughs> it's funny how often I've been asked that question by readers, because uh, it sounds odd. It sounds less optimistic. But the point is that at any one moment, cities, as I think I try to describe, at least in a sentence, cities are about uh, the present and the need to address the present in a particular way. It's about the future because we're always planning for the next iteration of whatever, a neighborhood, much less an entire metropolitan area. And, and the past is always there kind of uh, lurking. Uh, and uh, needing to be addressed relative to how we handle both the present and the future. So in that sense, uh, I suppose, uh, it is a compromise between past, present, and future, as any, I think, living organism could also be called as well. Right. What struck me about the formulation of um, compromise in the first sentence of a book about uh, idealistic, uh, you know, big projects was the inherent optimism in the notion of compromise. I mean, what you're surfacing there is the contestation, the the agonism, you know, the tension uh, between, you know, those advocating to preserve certain images of the past and those advocating for other forms of future. But even in the in the form of the of the term compromise, there is a kind of optimism that I think of as as endemic to the project. Um, I'm struck by the role of design projects in your narrative. Uh, the book is, is beautifully written. It's well crafted, as has been chronicled by many by many reviewers. But I'm struck by the extent to which you're using images to punctuate and move the narrative along. Surprising, you know, a number of paintings appear in the volume, among other things. I, I particularly appreciated the way that you characterize or kind of punctuate um, Daniel Burnham and Frederick Law Olmsted's uh, planning of the site of the Columbian Exposition of 1893 on the south side of Chicago's lakefront through the device of Thomas Cole's Course of Empire painting cycle. Now that's a distinctly visual trope. This, this must have something to do with your own training as an architect and urbanist, but also something to do with your teaching. Is that a fair reading? Yes, indeed. And actually, one of my disappointments about the publication itself, uh, I had an amazing editor. I, I don't think I will ever, I could ask for any, any, any better editor than I did have. However, he kept saying, this is a reader's book let's not worry about illustrations. Whereas I, as an architect, are saying, wait a minute, <laughs> you don't need any words. A picture is worth a thousand words. Apparently, I heard this somewhere, right? So uh, there was a continuous little struggle between, the, between my editor and I over this issue. But yes, you might say the book began as 26 PowerPoint lectures <laughs> with you know, about 100 images in each. <laughs> In a way, that was the genesis of the book. I, I think we'll get to this point a little bit later on. It, the book really comes out of a, many years of teaching variations of a class called the design of the American city, civic aspirations and an urban form, right? So in a way, the book is a kind of a summary of the various iterations of this class uh, translated from PowerPoint images and talking to uh, a narrative. And this is a course that is uh, occupies a kind of mythic status at this point on the Harvard campus. It's taught for how how many years? How many? Well, decades? at the GSD, probably close to thirty-five. At the Graduate School of Design, at the college, probably twenty-five. Uh, and yes, uh, 
there were periods of time when it, it actually exceeded the capacity of Piper Auditorium, which you know very well has a capacity of about 450 if the, if the fire marshal doesn't show up, right? I think that it, it is, and believe me, I'm not saying this out of undue modesty, it was not so much that I'm such a fabulous lecturer, it's that actually Harvard College, aimlessly, doesn't actually offer sufficient uh, coverage of issues of urbanization. And so among young people, obviously, you know, uh, cities and urban life and everything related to that is of great interest. And so they tended to kind of come to the class by its title, since very few such titles existed within Harvard University, at least in terms of the College of Arts and Sciences. Well, while there certainly, you know, has been, you know, there have been decades of demand for this content, um, you know, it is also true that you've been recognized as an extraordinary teacher over your, you know, over four decade uh, career. Um, oh, thank you. I think one thing to note there from my point of view would be that this course must have, must have originated as actual slides before we had PowerPoint. Absolutely. <laughs> I do think that uh, the images are extremely important. So, for example, I think that that famous painting and infamous, depending upon your point of view, called American Progress, right, which I use as an introduction to the kind of urban renewal chapter, because in a way, here's a painting from the 1870s talking about American sort of manifest destiny moving moving west, but could be easily interpreted as leaving St. Louis, abandoning St. Louis uh, in order to make a better one somewhere else. So there's a way in which it is true that an image poignantly addressed can save you a couple of pages of a narrative. <laughs> Among the topics this raises for me and a topic that we discuss often in this, uh, in this series is who's authorized uh, to make images about the future of the city. I'm also struck by the important role that landscape plays in the narrative. As an, a, not, a not completely disinterested reader, uh, I immediately you know, went to the bibliography, went to the index and found exactly where landscape urbanism landed. And I was very happy to see that it was um, covered and I thought fairly well treated. And at the same moment, I think you remind us landscape urbanists in that section of the book to return to the origins of the field in which Olmsted and his colleagues, of course, had this ambition of a new art, a new field that would be responsible for not just parks and promenades, but for the shape of the city uh, in, in, its, in its totality. Is that interest in landscape something that you've had over the course of your career, or has that grown over the recent past? You might have had some influence on me in that regard, Charles. <laughs> My wife is a landscape architect. She has not practiced very much other than as a sort of landscape planner and an author herself. So in that sense, yes. And our son at the moment is studying landscape architecture. Uh, so there you go. So I couldn't avoid it. But I also say, if I'm to be reborn, reincarnated, I'd like it to be reincarnated as a landscape architect. I really do believe, kind of terms aside, landscape urbanism, or ecological urbanism, or you know, whatever, I do believe that the people who are oriented towards thinking about landscape and who are currently being trained as landscape architects and as well as that field is emerging, I do think uh, uh, is becoming the most important of the sort of various design fields uh, uh, that, are, for example, are offered at the design school. So, and, and you've had a lot to do with this. I don't think you can take all the credit. I, I, it just seems obvious that uh, concern about the environment, which of course landscape architects by genetic code are, uh, concern about the environment uh, has to be a primary form of both uh, inspiration and action. Yeah. 
And in that sense, I think that, yes, uh, the landscape field is perhaps the most important of the design fields at the moment. And in that sense, I did want to kind of tie it back to kind of the Amsterdam generation because, you know, they didn't actually call themselves landscape architects very often. Subsequent generation called them that. They thought of themselves as sort of urban planners without necessarily using that term either. But they thought of themselves as city builders or projectors of a more humane kind of uh, environmentally, they probably didn't use that word either, environmentally focused uh, urban future. Olmsted, I mean, the, the, the bit of work I've done on this topic suggests to me that Olmsted, in um, agreeing to serve as the superintendent of the new uh, Central Park in New York, in lobbying successfully for the holding of the design competition, in winning the design competition along a party line, you know, five to four Republican to Democrat vote, he referred to himself as architect. And when he won the competition, he promoted himself to architect in chief. Yeah. And he was yeah, very yeah. clear yeah. at the time, yeah. you know, the contemporaneous accounts are, he was very clear that, you know, we, this new art needs to lay claim to the mantle of the architect, because otherwise the popular imagination will confuse us with people dealing with plant material primarily. So the cultural status. Which by the way, uh, he was right. And, and he was also right about the worry because actually for, uh, much of the 20th century, not to kind of exaggerate this too much, but, you know, landscape architects were felt to be those who came after <laughs> somehow, uh, as opposed to came early on in the process of reformulating places, right? Speaking of disciplines, um, new and old, um, you happen to have been trained as an architect and a city planner. Uh, you identify as an urban designer so far. Correct me if you feel differently. I, I, I think you identify as both an urban designer and an urban planner. And over the course of your professional career uh, and in your, your teaching uh, and in your service, you've been a relative, you know, rare individual who seems to credibly cross that boundary, which seems increasingly challenging to, to traverse. Am, am I overstating that? I mean, my, my reading of it is that the professionalization, let's say, of urban planning, uh, certainly in the academy uh, in this country, uh, has produced a condition where the habits of mind, forms of proof and evidence, the kinds of work that we do are increasingly challenged by a division between design on the one hand and planning on the other. Am, am, I, am I overstating that? No, uh, not at all. And I, I guess I'm an example of uh, spending a career of trying to overcome that divide. Can I say successfully? Probably not. <laughs> Uh, and not to get too parochial within the confines of the graduate school design, you know, service chair three times in the department that combines architects call, calling themselves urban designers and planners trying to get them to work together. And there have been moments when that has been easier to witness. And there are many more moments when somehow there's this sort of endemic sense of, no, no, we're, we're dealing with different things. The kind of architecture profession, perhaps an occasion is sort of too assertive of its own potency. At the same time, the planning profession seems much too, much too kind of reactive uh, rather than itself becoming an advocacy for uh, the common good or, 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 or better cities or environment, right? Yeah. Would too modest be fair there? I mean, in contrast to the, the hubris of the architect and their sense of, you know, we can do these things, whereas, you know, the social science and political science flank of planning often endures a kind of, you know, all, all we can do is report. Boy, you know, this could take an hour in itself to unravel, if one can unravel this. It has something to do with, at least in the United States, uh, with actually the urban renewal period. Uh, and then the blame that came to the planning profession, even though basically the architecture profession was still 
fairly prominent. Uh, you know, Jane Jacobs attacked planners. <laughs> she called, she didn't say the architects are bad. She, she said the planning field is fraught with, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, Robert Moses types rather than people really trying to understand neighborhoods, citizens, and so forth. So there's this sort of long, long, and by now should be behind us sort of effort to kind of distance oneself from the, the sort of uh, overall ambitions of the designers within the planning field. But to the point where do they contribute sufficiently to the discourse, or as you say, are, are, are so concerned as to not be mindful of citizenry that they stop short of actually helping citizenry rather than finding some kind of a way to appease opinion, right? <laughs> well, there are, among others, at least two moments in the book, one in which you deal with the intellectual history of um, American intellectuals and American cultural life being anxious about the city, right? And then this other moment of the kind of ur urban renewal and the reception of urban renewal and the and the sins of our of our grandfathers. With respect to the former, you know, you 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 refer to you know from Jefferson on this you know broad brush received wisdom that you know American you know arts and letters, American intellectual life has been characterized by a kind of mistrust of the European city. And that the industrial metropolis did little to assuage those anxieties. But I thought in a, a very nuanced and a very important chapter, I thought you actually, you know, you pushed back against that, back against, you know, not the not the basic claim, but rather the the overstating of that claim historically. That in fact, you know, in Jefferson, in an, any number of um, you know, people formulating uh, notions of the American continent, we see um, nuanced, perhaps even contradictory images in which the city continues to play a, a central role. No, absolutely. It is beyond question that a certain resistance to kind of especially rapid urbanization has been part of American culture and remains so. And, and, and to some extent, you could even say the pandemic maybe will uh, reinstate a, a little bit more of those anxieties. At the same time, American culture has built some of the most sort of amazing modern cities anywhere, at least in terms of, uh, if not in terms of sort of physical beauty, in terms of the kind of the becoming centers of intellectual life, productiveness, uh, industry, and so forth. So there's been uh, this uh, strange anomaly of, uh, on the one hand, fearing the city a little bit, or the inhumane qualities that perhaps undue concentration of activities creates onto individuals, not culture at large. And at the same time, the, you know, most rapid building of urbanization, uh, you know, up until, of course, the emergence of the kind of, uh, you know, China, India, and so forth uh, in the last, you know, sort of half century and so forth. But, you know, I, I think the truest uh, uh, example, perhaps, is a quote that I, by uh, Emerson, right? I wish for rural strength and virtue and city facility and polish. I wish for rural strength and religion and city facility and polish. And there he is, at one of the transcendentalists who's accused of only being interested in, you know, na nature, uh, sort of expressing this, can we somehow find some symbiosis, right, between, of course, culture, which has to be urbanized, or at least occur in society or in concentration of people, and, of course, you know, respect for whatever you want to call it, nature or the natural world and the environment or kind of the globe and so forth. So I, more so than a, uh, 
uh, anti-urbanism. There are many examples, and there have been libraries of books filled with such uh, accounts. Uh, it's been more about this sort of search for a middle ground of some kind, but obviously rather elusive. Uh, and you might even say, and some have said that the suburb represents this sort of, uh, at least in its origins, this sort of middle ground, you know, the best of both worlds. The trouble is that, uh, as in any kind of utopian aspiration, uh, uh, the best of both things become the least of either thing, uh, and therefore the dilemma, right? Uh, so, so yes, I, I, I uh, for a long time, I've been, I've wrestled uh, myself with this tradition of anti-urban, this accusation of anti-urbanism, uh, uh, and yet, uh, as I mentioned, uh, one of the most uh, sort of uh, uh, important books about the subject came out in the 1960s. Uh, I, I think it was by the whites, there's a husband-wife team, uh, I think also was an expression of what was happening in the city at the time, having sort of suffered from the urban renewal period and suburbanization, and there was this kind of uh, unnecessary relationship between the moment and then uh, the idea that's uh, American across its history. But of course, yes, indeed, Jefferson imagined an agricultural republic, but my goodness, that was, you know, in <laughs> the end of the 18th century, right? This notion of Emerson uh, reminds me something of the formulation attributed to um, John F. Kennedy, which is the national capital combined something, if I have it right, like the um, the charm of the Northeast and the um, and the and the uh, and the humidity of the Southeast. Is that right? Something like this. Something like that. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, it, there is a kind of chapter on the capital, right? In my in my sense, the kind of the dual utopian conception for it, the original one, sort of actually based upon you know a very kind of a sort of pre-modern notion about the kind of Renaissance urbanism transported to the new world, uh, Versailles being a kind of a, a model, if you will, for a democratic society, which just seems odd. But you know, at, towards the end of the 19th century, and thanks to Chicago, as I as I try to point out. This is not often enough, Chicago's not often enough given credit for the, the DC that we perceive today, because actually the influence of the Chicago uh, exposition led to this desire as it was being demolished, led to the desire to say, hey, we can achieve this for real and why not in the capital, which has languished for a century in terms of its physical form, but now needs to express the imperialism of America at the end of the 19th century. And so the sort of Milan Commission set to kind of create an actual version of the Chicago World's Fair, not out of plaster of Paris, but out of sort of granite and stone. Uh, and they achieved it. Uh, they achieved it. But it still has this kind of, it's it's hardly Paris. It still has kind of this sort of all kinds of pastoral uh, <laughs> qualities. It still is a kind of city in a garden in a way, right? If you, and this maybe has to do with uh, Kennedy's quote about the South still being present uh, in its uh, climate. If you look at an image of the capital from the air, wow, the monumentality of the core, right, is very strong. If you look at any kind of tourist map of the area, it just shows a bunch of buildings sitting in a sea of green. <laughs> and there you kind of have this sort of a dialectical condition uh, that exists there. It's very American in that regard of things sitting in a sea of green, uh, although the kind of imperialistic aspirations can be also obviously perceived as well in the second iteration of the planning for the DC. 
I mean, capital is not just the um, not just the the project of the national capital in D.C., but in fact, state capitals you know play a role in the narrative uh, in the yes. dislocation, let's say, or the kind of disorientation of the financial and the cultural capitals uh, often you know not being the seats of government. You know, Chicago being a fine example, New York being another, in which. There was this impulse of both withdrawing. Um, I'm, I'm mindful of Robert Stern's formulation of the academical village in his account, yes, yes. Um, but equally yes. the notion of you know the center of gravity. You know, these, as new states join the union, somehow in or in or about uh, in or about the center of the population. So that tension between you know consolidation of financial and cultural resources versus the distribution of land it's it's embedded in the in the founding documents of the of the national project. By the way. I- you know, probably the most amount of time that I spent researching other than relying on PowerPoints from past iterations of the class had to do with this issue about whether or not, what was the actual sort of consciousness of locating these, what was the purpose and whether it was written down anywhere about locating the capitals away from, uh, oftentimes away from the major sort of economic centers of a state. And, you know, I couldn't find any actual evidence uh, for either the theory that some uh, uh, sort of promote, which has to do with the kind of anti-urbanism, one should not sort of pollute politics <laughs> uh, with sort of industry and therefore, you know, keep it away from corporations or whatever, whatever Bernie would say right now, right? Uh, uh, at the same time, uh, th- there is this other evidence of saying, no, 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 you know, these can be the catalysts for growth and therefore we should locate them somewhere in the centers of the states where they could sort of uh, equally (laughs) or in some kind of equal fashion address the needs of the state including its populations and I uh, probably not is the case and probably some of it was accidental um, but I suspect that somewhere both both the kind of perniciousness of locating a capital and being polluted by politics, as well as the more aspirational notion about locating it at the center of things, both uh, were uh, either literally or un- unintentionally uh, present. Right? Given that we're now in D.C., I'm interested <laughs> to draw you out a little bit on, you know, of course, you know, the, the space of D.C. has been recently repoliticized. We can reference the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol itself. Uh, we can reference the Trump's televised, you know, kind of traversing of, of the lawn of the White House to occupy the square in Washington, D.C. as a kind of rhetorical political act. And given your, you know, both, you know, literacy about this topic and deep interest in it over many years, how do you read the idea of the spaces of D.C., the nation's capital, being kind of reoccupied for political purposes today? Well, I mean, unfortunately, as is virtually every aspect of American life these days is being sort of unduly politicized. Um, I, the, the other thing that you didn't mention that actually, you know, our former president uh, sort of uh, demanded was a kind of a, a fealty to classical architecture for the capital. And uh, as you may know, I served uh, uh, on the Commission of Fine Arts, <laughs> an important but somewhat anachronistic organization dating back to Mr. Burnham. Actually, it's been downhill since Burnham chaired the commission. <laughs> but, you know, it has an enormous impact in that it more or less sort of approves projects, both many public private projects, but certainly all sort of public projects, including memorials, uh, open spaces, uh, you know, buildings and so forth. And, you know, uh, 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 former President Trump uh, um, substituted seven white men (laughs) 
onto the commission. There are seven commissioners at any one point. I imagine seven white men leading a commission called uh, the Fine Arts Commission uh, in a city that is of 75, 70 to 75% a minority. Uh, so, uh, and by the way, uh, Pre President Biden recently has sort of unappointed four of these members. So we'll see what, what happens. Uh, but yes, I think it's it's sad. I, I think that, you know, I don't know, this might be a silly analogy, but you know, uh, uh, DC, despite its sort of physical grandeur, always intended to represent, again, kind of a certain amount of egalitarianism, the soapbox, right? Uh, the mall, anyone can either play football or frisbee in the mall or, you know, march against Washington. Uh, so in that sense, it was always, it always might have had a political purpose, but not unduly in support of a particular ideology of politics. Uh, and to some extent, that kind of sort of, again, the sort of pastoral, you know, it, it is a city in the landscape uh, 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 aspect of it also suggested a certain amount of uh, non bias towards a particular politics. But that seems to have, uh, uh, like everything else today, uh, that seems to have sort of uh, been is threatened substantially right now by the events that you mentioned and uh, and others hopefully not to come, right, yeah. You mentioned your appointment to the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts by President Obama in 2012. I mean, that's one along a, a, a long, long list of uh, public service. You've been director of the NEA's Mayor's Institute. Uh, you founded the Big City Planning Director's uh, version of that institute, among many other roles. Um, uh, among any other American urbanist I'm aware of, you spent, you know, as much or more of your career advocating for, um, uh, you know, the kind of role of design and planning in the public realm. Alex, given the events of the past several years and various uh, social protest movements on various topics, you know, the, the space of the street, uh, the space of the mall in Washington, D.C., the spaces of public appearance, to use the Arendtian term, uh, are once again center stage for the playing out of this uh, American political drama. How might you think or how might we think as designers and planners about the relationship of those spaces to the right to, to occupy those spaces for purposes of civil protest? I'm not sure how, what the designer's role would be to kind of create a sort of civic scale soapbox that would both accommodate the ability to speak freely about any cause that you wish to proclaim. I'm a creature of the anti-war demonstrations and once had a, believe it or not, but I had a ponytail once upon a upon time. Well, we sat there on the mall by the hundreds of thousands. No one was protesting against us, or at least not very many. <laughs> there was no counter-protest of any stature at the same time. Yes, of course, there were people that were, you know, uh, concerned that we were becoming socialists and all this. But the degree to which any expression of opinion now is met by a sort of counter and dissenting opinion, I think makes it harder to imagine a designed environment to accommodate expression. Is there a contradiction between the idea of big plans, especially big government plans on the one hand, and the notion of the lessons that we've learned from the failures of modern planning? On the one hand, you know, of course, it, uh, we also have to reference, you know, Reagan used the term, you know, city on a hill himself. And of course, we're in this political economy in the past several decades uh, for, for, for many decades of your career. 
uh, in which you know a, a part of the political uh, kind of conversation has been to starve the government of resources because the you know the, the projects, especially the big projects of government, have been seen to be a part of the pl- problem rather than their solution. So, how do you reconcile both in the book but also in your own work uh, as a, a practitioner? How do you reconcile that tension between you know the failure of some of these big projects of of, um, of the state on the one hand? and the aspiration to collective expressions in design on the other? Two things. One is the effects of urban renewal need to be blamed a little bit on the design professions in that apart from policies and so forth and actions of cities taking advantage of the largesse of funding coming from the federal government to do things, right, to revive the city, quote. So, you know, we maybe one of the issues was too much of a consensus within the kind of design planning community emanating from the kind of early modernist uh, rhetoric emanating from Europe about, you know, the, the new city must be different, must be, you know, full of air and sunlight, endless mobility and so forth, and the kind of the Villa Radius issues. So to some extent, I'm not saying this is the most important problem with urban renewal, but to some extent, the fact that uh, given a, a substantial amount of federal resources to do things, what the designers chose to do or chose to pr- uh, promote actually was fairly short-sighted in terms of actual physical transformation. So I just want to say that a little bit, right? In other words, if an equivalent, um, if for some reason, equivalent amount of billions of dollars through the Green New Deal were to come forth right now, I'm not sure that the plans that would be produced by landscape urbanists or architects or planners would uh, would, of course, uh, produce the, quite that devastating result. So I, we don't say that. At the same time, I do want to say that there's a, kind of a, a dual problem with the urban renewal period, apart from what I just said. Yes, of course, the impact upon minorities, and especially the African-American uh, community, uh, because although the urban renew- earlier urban renewal acts were to try to improve housing in the cities, the money that came forward to mayors and councils uh, did not need to be used for housing. They wanted business. They wanted, uh, you know, they wanted other investment. They were trying to, you know, kind of attract uh, uh, other things to their cities. Uh, and so that was the kind of the, until subsequent urban renewal legislation that demanded housing to be part of the largesse of federal dollars. Uh, to some extent, understandably, you know, if New York City thought that uh, a Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts was more important than a few other, another couple of thousand units of affordable housing to replace a, a sort of a down and out neighborhood, that made more sense to them, right? So to some extent, it's hard to fault them other than on a moral basis, right? So, okay. So of course, the impact upon the minorities of the country are absolutely inexcusable. But the other failure of urban renewal is with us today, which is the fact that it was universally determined to be a failure of both design and policy. The reluctance of the government to invest in cities, to invest in public efforts, is as important as, as, a, as important <laughs> a problem of the urban renewal era as, of course, the impact on the city at the time, right? In other words, yes, we need a new urban renewal. God, of course, you could never use that term. We need a new urban renewal program right now. And, of course, uh, maybe focus more towards the ambitions of the the Green New Deal, right? But it ain't coming. (laughs) It ain't coming. Uh, And so 
oddly enough, and this is the, the chapter tried to, in the book tried to get at that a second. There were benefits to cities, not to people, not to certain people. There were benefits to cities. You might even say that the kind of the the shift from abandonment to reinvestment uh, in cities begins during the urban period. Uh, people hate when I say that, but it's factually true. But because of the damage it was done to citizens, not to you know the abilities of the cities to you know recapture investment, it was perceived to be an unmitigated disaster. And therefore, the federal government has since then, whether it's due to Reagan or not, is reluctant to reinvest, make such major investments, uh, especially in urban affairs. And that's a problem for today because, of course, whether it's infrastructure, broadly understood. By the way, the Republicans should actually look in the dictionary under the term infrastructure. It's nothing to do with uh, bridges and highways. <laughs> really, they should. Uh, it has actually more to do with what Biden is proposing. That is, infrastructure is the, sort of the underlay of a system. When the underlay of a system is not just about bridges and highways and maybe a little bit of transit, it actually does have to do with the internet and uh, housing and so forth. So actually, the minimization of the definition of infrastructure is also a bit of a problem, but now I'm, I'm digressing. So indeed, the second big problem resulting in urban renewal is the lack of interest, the halting nature of public dollars dedicated towards urbanization. And I don't know whether that can be turned around, but it needs to be turned around, especially relative, not just to whatever, better housing, but environmental justice, uh, fighting against climate change and all the other aspects of uh, environmental distress that we're facing. Are you optimistic, Alex, or how would you characterize the state of the design and planning profession's ability to engage with civilians. So among all the many sins of our grandfathers, we could say among the many failures of the modernist planning project, you know, among the myriad things we could talk about, the idea that, you know, the, the term that Stephen Gray, our colleague at the GSD uses is paternalism, right? That both political leadership, design professionals, planners, uh, they had the right answer for us and they weren't really too bothered by engaging public opinion or the ideas of the citizenry implicated in these projects. Are you optimistic that we've learned from those lessons? Do we have better tools to engage in civic or public discourse with the populations that are really subject to these big plans? I'm reluctant to say either yes or no. <laughs> to some extent, we are. We are, right? And this is where, of course, my criticism of the planning profession, uh, it, it maybe is itself slightly overstated because actually the planning profession has taught us that uh, engagement with uh, actual human beings, <laughs> uh, citizens, organizations, uh, so forth, is very important uh, before you know, setting off and concluding on what a plan should be. So in that sense, absolutely, yes. The no is... I'm not sure that we figured out how to engage properly or whether or not that might even happen. And I know that planning professionals are struggling with this. And by the way, from my own experience of many years before public meetings and this and that, not the most altruistic or civic-minded citizens are not the ones that necessarily show up to offer their opinions, right? public meetings. So sometimes this uh, newfound necessity for engagement comes across against those who wish to engage with us that are themselves not necessarily as sort of altruistically minded. And, you know, I don't want to sort of go to the kind of the saw of the kind of the not in my backyard, but believe me, that is not a trivial issue in any planning, actually, in this country. And of course, at the moment, 
you can see this in a place like Boston. Absolutely. Just as an example, we need more housing. We absolutely need more housing, right? More affordable housing, not for plutocrats, right? But my goodness, you know, you go to any neighborhood in Boston and they fear more housing, not always out of because the wrong people will arrive, though that is sometimes the case, but because it'll make their life more difficult. It will cause additional gentrification or it will congest the streets or it will uh, make it more difficult to move around uh, or it will take away from other needs that perhaps we think in our neighborhood should be done as opposed to more housing. So it's a, it's a real dialectical problem. So while the yes says, yes, we've learned a great deal. And also I think that our the design professions are not quite as singular in their solutions as we were earlier in the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, especially as misabsorbed in America by the kind of the polemicists, uh, the European polemicists. The no has to do a little bit with making sure that our engagement processes reach proper engagers. And because it's not always the case, uh, public processes can also be commandeered sometimes. And what's our response to that? And then, you know, lastly, no, because sometimes, by the way, one of the principal reasons I, I don't want to kind of focus on this, why I chose to offer the class, which was designed for the graduate school design, offer it at the colleges, I, I thought that uh, non-designers should become more engaged with cities and understand the dynamics of them and so forth. And I wanted to reach the future sort of leaders of the world, not the future leaders of the design professions. <laughs> and I still think that that's much more important for all of us to do. Uh, uh, so how to, how, to, how to reach out and attract and engage with intelligence about cities is the kind of the slight no part of the question, right? Though I would say it's more yes than no to the question you asked, whatever, five minutes ago. <laughs> um, I, I'm interested in a, a, brief, um, a brief text that you wrote recently on the role of optimism in moments of crisis. Um, you wrote recently, throughout American history, a reconfiguring of society following a crisis often uh, catapulted the nation forward. Shouldn't today's interrelated crises do so uh, as well? Well, that's the optimist in me speaking. <laughs> It's how I've come to know you, Alex, over many years as a colleague and a friend, that you are, in fact, you embody that optimism. Um, and as a way to kind of close out the conversation about the book, you know, in the postscript of the book, you reference the potential of the Green New Deal, as you have uh, in your comments just now. And I wonder about the possibilities that you see in uh, the role of urban design and planning. Uh, it's a little bit of, you know, a question that we asked of landscape a few decades ago, like, it's clear that the design of the Green New Deal will be central to our fields for the coming years. The question is, uh, are urban design and planning up to it? But what, what's the state of play there that you see? Are you optimistic to, to the extent planning and design might be prepared to deal with something like a, a national infusion of resources around um, infrastructure, particularly with respect to climate? You know, um, I'm a little bit more optimistic about the design fields being a bit more prepared than I am about our political system being prepared to enable movement towards a Green New Deal. So how's that for a very sort of concise answer? Because I, I do think that the design professions have learned a lot <laughs> across the crises, of not just of the past year, but of the sort of 20th century, relative to the transformative nature of, you know, kind of the modern world in terms of kind of settlement most broadly considered. 
I do think so. I, I am optimistic there. Again, this is why the landscape field has to kind of continue to uh, sort of advocate even more so. I think that the planners have learned many good lessons from the Jane Jacobs revolution, even if though they might need to be occasionally more assertive than they are and expressing uh, sort of th- their values. I'm less optimistic about what will enable this to happen in terms of our broader cultural dystopia that we're facing now politically, not just politically, but also in terms of just, uh, you know, animus of one towards the other across uh, states, across counties, maybe even across uh, neighborhoods in some cases. Whether or not the design fields, the design and planning fields can help overcome such contrasts within the citizenry, uh, you know, I don't know. I would hope so. Alex Krieger, thank you so very much for spending some time with us. Thank you. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit fotac.gsd.harvard.edu.